0: All right, marriage by design. It was interesting, this was on the bulletin, this uh, graphic for this sermon series, and I had a number of folks this week ask, is that a new building for, that we're, we're raising money for? <laughs> it's like, no, that, it's an architectural design. That's to try to connect you to, it's a design. God has designed marriage to be a certain way. And if you don't follow God's blueprints, things go really bad really fast. And so last week, we looked at the blueprint, the essence and the core of what God has designed marriage to be, this week we look at what happens when it goes terribly, terribly awry. All right, so the problem of marriage is what we're looking at this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 18 and then verse 21. And then we're going to jump over and read it's Genesis chapter 3 there. All right, hear God's word. And do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit that is the context and then Paul's going to give a list off some things that are better than being debauched being drunk and one of them he says in verse 21 submitting to one another when you're filled with the spirit you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Now we're going to drop down, we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So the call for marriage is to submit to one another. It's the call actually for all believers in this room to be submitting to one another, including for our, our marriages. Husbands, yes, submitting their wives, their life to their wives, and wives submitting their life to their husbands. And then Genesis chapter 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and his offspring, or her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Not just wives, submit to husbands. This is a call to all Christians to be submitting to one another, Paul has just been describing in verses 18 through 21 of Ephesians 5, the Spirit-filled life. Be filled with the Spirit, he says. And Paul is saying what that life under God's control, under the control of the Spirit, looks like. In verses 19 through 21, he sketches what that looks like. He gives some examples. He says, for one, it looks like singing. Not necessarily Julie Andrews running through the hills singing, but you have a new song in your life and your mouth. Verse 20, it looks like gratitude as opposed to bitterness. And then in verse 21, it looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what that means, very simply, is that you defer to one another. That you set the needs of others above your own it is supposed to characterize this is the supposed to, what the light is supposed to characterize the follower of Jesus Jesus actually Paul puts it another way in Philippians chapter 2 that we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of Jesus where we have the same mindset of Jesus where it says there that he considered others more significant than himself and that is what we're to do that is what submitting to another means to consider their needs their desires, their longings above your own. And then, almost like a hinge, he turns, and what he's going to do, beginning in verses 22, and then moving into chapter 6 of Ephesians, is he's going to say this. Here's what submitting to one another looks like in the practicalities of your various relationships. And verses 22 through 32 of chapter 5, he's going to say, for example here's what submitting to one another looks like for a husband and wife. And in the early part of chapter six, here's what it looks like for parents and children and then employers and employees. And so he's saying, I'm pressing in the Spirit-filled life into the practicalities of your relationships. Now, positively, what he is saying in regards to our marriages and this call to submit to one another is this, what is critical critical And foundational for any marriage, and really any relationship, but for the purposes of our series, for your marriage, is that you must be willing to submit your life to your spouse. To die to yourself daily, and to consider them and their needs and more desires, and their desires as more significant than yourself. Let me state it negatively, though, because there is a negative to this. And that is this. Did you hear what it's saying? To put it negatively, you must submit to one another. And in order to do that, you have to be, have to be filled with the Spirit. Let me put it more plainly. Let me put it this way. If you're going to actually be able to submit in love to one another in a marital relationship, it's going to take an act of God is what he is saying. You know what acts of God are? They're things like floods and being struck by lightning. That that is what he is saying, that you need the filling of of the Spirit of God, an act of God upon your heart and your life in order for you to actually love each other the way you're supposed to in marriage. Now, why would he say that? It's because he's assuming some very, very, very bad news about us, which is this, that we don't want to love each other that way. That we will not submit our lives to one another that way. And that we have a deep and sincere and significant problem in our marriages. And it is this, our unwillingness to consider the other's needs as more significant than our own. Now, we're gonna look at that problem this morning. Three points about that this morning. We're gonna move through it. Our problem with marriage, though, did not begin first with your marriage, it began first with an act of insubordination. Our problem with marriage is, or has begun, is begun in our lives with an act of insubordination. Now, here we have to go to Genesis chapter 3, which is why I read that. We have to go way, 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 way back. Way back to the very beginning. And what we saw last week was that God made Adam and, when, and then Adam says, it's not good for Adam to be alone, and so God forms and fashions a beautiful woman out of Adam, and God takes this woman, and he gives her to Adam. Literally, it's the first wedding in which God the Father is giving the woman, walking her down the aisle, and giving this bride, Eve, to Adam and saying, marriage, it's a good thing. And it says these two are to come together and form a permanent and exclusive marriage covenant. And make a promise that is never to be torn apart. And we saw that permanence and that exclusivity last week. But also the depth and the intimacy that that is supposed to form. They are supposed to be one flesh. To be connected and interconnected that they are to be lifelong companions, partner together to do what God has called them to do, and to enjoy one another as they delight in God and worship God. That they are to be side by side, serving God's purposes, and face to face as intimate friends. And this describes their oneness. What does it say? That they were naked and they were not ashamed. In that relationship, they were fully known. and They were fully together in vulnerability, but in wondrous security and love. They were known to the depths of their soul and yet fully accepted and secure. This is what God wants for your marriage. But then it all unravels. And that is Genesis chapter 3. And this tells us that a serpent, the New Testament unmasked the serpent as the evil one Satan himself. And he comes and deceives Adam and Eve, and joins in, they join in rebellion against God. And when they sin against God, their eyes are opened, and they discern the difference now between good and evil. And they thought that that was going to be a good thing, but then discerning good and evil, here's what they discovered. God is good, and we are evil. And that there is something shameful now about us. That they have sinned against God and now they are living with guilt and shame. And now they are living under God's judgment and God's curse. And beginning in verse 15, we see that God curses the evil one. And then he curses the woman. And then he brings out his curse and his consequences on the man. See, what we see here is a fundamental shift in their nature begins to happen in Genesis chapter 3. That they were men for God, and this is what sin brings about though. It brings about the fundamental shift of the nature of humanity where at one point we were bent towards God and now we're bent inward to the self. At one point they found their meaning and their significance and joy in God. They were made by God and they were made for God and their hearts were to spawn in service and joy in the Lord. It was all good, so they say. And along with that, because they were mutually partnered in worship and delight in God, their relationship experienced delight. But now, what has happened? Now, sin enters the world, and they take their eyes off of the uniting and common purpose of delighting in God, and now their eyes are on what? Self. Self. This is the grand bugaboo that we have turned life being about God, and we now make it about the self. We were created for God's glory, but we have said, no, this is about me, myself, and I. And this is the reigning North American purpose, isn't it? The freedom of the self, the right to autonomy, the right to pursue happiness. I have a right to be happy, don't I? People say right before they get divorced. The Bible says that our purpose for life is made by our creator and we are to live for his glory and his purposes, but we have flipped that and we have made life about the glorious, wondrous purposes of me and the worship of myself and the great greatness and the grandeur of the great I, the self. And how do you think this new disposition of not being directed towards God, but instead being directed and living self centered, has affected marital relationships. We have said to God, We will not submit to you, and therefore we have said to one another, Neither will I submit to you either. Do you see that? Ephesians chapter 5, 21 says, submit to one another, but you can submit to one another only if you're submitting to God. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we said, no longer will I submit to God, and so neither will I submit to those around me, in particular my spouse. And what we see here, moving into the second thing I want you to see this morning, as we move into the meat and look directly at marriage, is this, that the cancer that kills marriage, if I could say it, then this is unbelievably reductionistic. There are many things that spawn out of this that kill marriage. But the cancer that kills marriage is this in a word. It is selfishness. It is self, 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 self. It is making marriage about my self-preservation, about my self-protection, about my self-exaltation, about my self-righteousness, about my self-fulfillment, about my self-autonomy. Just look what happens in Genesis chapter three after their sin. I mean, immediately, what happens? Adam and Eve, they feel ashamed and so they cover themselves in their shame. They have a sense of the self, right? What a shame, right? You see it, you ever, it is somebody, you ever had a pimple on the front of your nose? What is it the only thing you can think about? You feel like everybody in the room is looking right there. In other words, when there's something flawed about you, you actually think everybody's looking more at you. You become more self-centered. More self-aware. Suddenly they're self-aware. And God comes into the garden. He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And they're hiding. And he calls them out of their hiding. And he says to to Adam, what have you done? And Adam does what? What's the first thing out of his mouth? Blame. She made me do it. What is that? It's self-protection. No, no, no. Don't, Don't look at me. No, look at her. It's self righteousness. No, no, no. I'm not the problem here. I was a good boy. It's the one you gave me. Oh, and he blames God for it. You gave me this woman, and what are the consequences? We even see. We didn't read it this morning, but we see the consequences. God comes down and his cursing the consequences. He laid down on Eve. He said this: that your desire will be for your husband. That's her curse. And yet he will rule over you. And what does that mean? That is an odd thing. And we can look at this more when we get to gender roles later on. But what, essentially what he's saying, he's not saying you're going to desire your husband romantically. right? For a wife to romantically and des- sexually desire her husband, that's not a curse. It's a rarity. It's not a curse, though. No, in Genesis, what does it mean that you desire your husband? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it's the same language that God uses when he speaks to Cain when he says this. Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same words. Same word for desire. In other words, what desire means for her is that you will want to rule, dominate, and control your husband, and yet he will rule and dominate and control you. Now what's entered our relationships. In other words, our selfishness will mean that our relationships will become about control and one-upmanship. About who is getting more out of this. And the most intimate relationship between a husband and a wife is now going to be marked by strife, painful conflict, and a struggle for power and control. As these two parties have now turned inward on themselves. And that's just the first day of sin. I mean, that's a high level of sinning for one day, don't you think? So here's what I want you to see. Our problem with marriage continues. At first, it begins with the sin, by removing ourselves from God. By saying, God, I'm going to be insubordinate to you. I'm going to live for myself. And then that selfishness continues into our marriage. In other words, we live a life committed to the self. And because we have rejected God and made life all about the self... Here's what we end up doing. Here's how it plays out in our life. Again, I'm going to say this. I'm keeping things at the 30,000-foot level. You should come to the Sunday school class at 9 o'clock because there we bring it down to the 6,000-feet level. And then in your conversations with your spouse, you bring it home. You land the plane. But at the 30,000-foot level, here's the issue, is that we place, in our selfishness, we place impossible demands upon our marriages and upon our spouses. In our selfishness, we place impossible demands upon marriage and our spouse. In other words, we view this relationship as a means to serve my personal needs and my desires. Sexually, romantically, emotionally. It's all about my personal and individual gratification. The biblical call for marriage was bigger than the self, wasn't it? But now marriage is about me. To use the psychological word we use in the 21st century, it's it's about self actualization I don't feel very fulfilled in this marriage. This marriage takes something from me. It doesn't make me whole the way I thought it was going to. What is this, now what does this look like and how does it play out culturally for how we go about getting ready to be married? Well, here's what we do. Well, actually, here's how it, this is a culture in, in the past and the response has now been cynicism about marriage and why people don't even get married. But in the past, 30, 40, 50 years, here's how it's worked out culturally, is that we continually look for the perfect partner. The person who will gratify our social, sexual and emotional needs and desires and bring us fulfillment in life. In other words, this is where, (laughs) in other words, what we were saying is we want someone who will, who will, how should we say, in the immortal words of Tom Cruise, who will complete me. This is the 20th and 21st century ethic of marriage. We have the cultural expectation of, what do we call them, the the Holy Grail one, the soulmate. The, of the 7.5 billion people on this planet, you're supposed to find the one person who's gonna meet all of your needs. Listen, if you're supposed to find just the one person in this needle, in the, that needle in a, haystack, in a haystack of 7.5 billion, good luck. But the idea of a soulmate, this one person with whom I will just fit perfectly, with whom marriage will always be thrilling, a person who will make me happy and gratify me, <laughs> that's what we look for. Tim Keller has actually said this, and in looking at the sociology of in the the history of marriage, he says, never before in history has there been a society of people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse. They have a laundry list of things that they are looking for, and that laundry list is becoming more and more and more unrealistic in its expectations. You see, we want somebody who looks beautiful and who's charming. And then who looks at us and says, aren't you beautiful and charming? Because we get, feel really good when somebody who's beautiful and charming says that we're beautiful and charming because then we feel beautiful and charming. But what happens is then we get married and life hits and we aren't feeling so fulfilled because our spouse is now working 60-hour work weeks and there's a yard to cut and there's three kids with ear infections and a mountain of bills and a mountain of dishes to clean. And so we've created this kind of this aura, this necessary, this, this vision of marriage that's going to fulfill me. And so we, here's what it looks like on Twitter, if we Twitterize this. Because we still even, you know, we want to still project that this is what marriage looks like. And so I saw one tweet that went this way. Five years ago, I married my best friend, my soulmate, I love you. In real life, what you really hear in that same house is, if you eat the leftover chocolate chip cookies, I will end you. And church, if we buy into this cultural expectation that that marriage will actually fulfill you and complete you and be the means to satisfy you, guess what's going to happen? You will be constantly and perpetually discontent with your marriage. Constantly and perpetually discontent. Those who believe that marriage will fulfill their deepest desires for sex or romance and emotional needs will begin to believe this, I married the wrong person. Or I missed my soulmates. Or maybe this marriage is now dead. But the truth is, the truth is that on this side of the fall, when you're married to a deeply flawed person, you always marry the wrong person. Here's how Stanley Haueross put it. In his book, Sex and Politics, he said this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will marry, always marry, the wrong person because you're always marrying a sinner. And if you marry somebody thinking that they're going to fulfill you and satisfy you, then that will definitely mean that they are the wrong person. No one has the ability to fully satisfy me. Only God has that ability. All, All of your desires to be perfectly loved and perfectly secure and perfectly fulfilled are only found in the love of God and nowhere else. And the problem with marriage is that because we have rejected God and his authority... And have run from him and rebelled from his loving care. So now we look for marriage to do what only God can do. We count on marriage to do what God never designed it to do, which was to fulfill our souls. He never designed it to do that. He designed for himself to fulfill our souls. And now there is a void. There's a void in our life. Because every single one of us are children of divorce. You're children of the divorce between humanity and God. And in which we said, God, we don't want you in our life. And therefore we run around with a God-shaped hole, a vacuum in our life. And we are naked and we are ashamed. And now we're trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves. And we clothe ourselves with things like self-loathing and self-hatred. And we clothe ourselves with a sense of of worthlessness. This is what we're clothed with. And we want to cover over these things. And so we have all these strategies for how we clothe ourselves. We use work and athletics and academics and parenting, but the place we most often go is our marriage. It's the number one strategy to fill the God-shaped hole in our life. You know why? Because it most it's the closest thing to what we lost. We looked at this last week, that this is supposed to be this marriage covenant is an echo of our relationship with God. This is the primary image that he uses to describe his relationship with his people, that we are his bride, his people, and he covenants with us. And so we're looking for the thing that's closest to what we lost. So we marry in the hope of finding unending affection and affirmation from a beautiful person and our soulmate who will heal everything that is wrong with us. You know what? Where that manifests itself, where it becomes most obvious is not in the newly married, dreamy and starry-eyed partners, but it's most seen in those who are most angry and bitter at their spouse. Because when you make a god out of your spouse, they will inherently and automatically fail you. They cannot live up to that expectation. I heard the story of one one uh, counselor who had a, a couple in his office and after. Session after session after session of hearing the wife just pour forth her bitterness and her invective and her anger about her spouse, he finally said this, well, your issue is that you've made a God out of your spouse. And she looked at him, she said, what are you talking about? He's not my God. I can't stand him. I'm not making a God out of him. But he says, no, that's exactly, counselor said, that's exactly what you've done. It's why you're so angry. Because he was supposed to be the Messiah that saved you. To do what only God could do for you. And he has failed you. And so you resent him for it. This turns our spouse into the gods, into our God. If we've rejected God and we look at our marriage to do this. We turn marriage into a form of salvation. Which is why it's such a huge deal in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Christian world to not be married. Because we've lauded marriage to the point of, oh, this is salvation for some of us. But here's what, I, if I could, to bring this right down to something very, very, very applicable. It's something I will do every once in a while in one of my marriage uh, homilies, wedding homilies. As I'll make a, a, a bride and a groom look at each other, and I'll say, you are not enough for me. This will save you thousands of hours of counseling and listening to thousands of marital sermons to realize this. The person that you're married to is not enough to fulfill you. They cannot satisfy your soul. Now, when we do this, though, if we look at your spouse to satisfy us and to fulfill us, here's what you end up doing. You will suck the very life out of that marriage. And you'll suck the very life out of your spouse. They will become a shell of a human being. It, you know, this language is, is part of our modern and normal vernacular, isn't it? Right, we, we say, let's say you have somebody that you know, you have a friend, but eventually you have this point where you just say, I have to get away from them because they were sucking the life out of me. And what do we mean by that? We mean that their neediness and their self-centeredness and their demandingness just took and took and took and took and took. And when we marry with an attempt to have our spouse fill us up, we are sucking the life out of them. We are not loving them. What are we doing? We are using them. It's way worse than we thought. We thought we just had some conflict. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, put it this way. He said, there is no secret why people continue to get married in view of our deep neediness. It is a parasitic relationship. But the problem in marriage is what you have is two two ticks and no dog. That is a perfect and graphic illustration. Now, let me see if I can, here's how the world puts some sugar on the two ticks. Here's how we put this. Is we say, here's the key to marriage. Is you need to learn to compromise. And so what do we do in marriage? The marital covenants of the world is this. We make a covenant of compromise. And here's what we mean by a covenant compromise. The covenant of compromise is this. Is that I will be the spouse that I ought to be to the degree that you're the spouse that you ought to be. And therefore, if you don't live up to my expectations and what I believe that you have vowed, I will not live up to mine. And therefore, it becomes a tit for tat. And really, this is an ethic of compromise so that we think we each, what we do is we each take turns feeling like we're being fulfilled in this marriage. Hey, it's your week to feel fulfilled. It's my week to feel fulfilled. On this decision, I really need this decision to go my way so that I feel pretty good about this. If I can put it graphically, we are just in that way. The covenant of compromise is just two ticks taking turns sucking the blood out of each other. And this approach, it will feel like it works. It will feel like it works for a little while until it doesn't. Until one partner looks like they're getting more fulfillment out of this relationship than the other person. Or it's one person is sucking a little too much blood and life out of the other, and then they and then this where this really goes downhill is when both ticks look at each other and say, "You are the problem." And when you have that, when you have two people who have demands and expectations of the other, what you have formed there is a marital destruction and chaos. Here's how Dan, Dana Shapiro, who wrote a book, he wrote uh, did thousands of interviews with. Um, with interviews with the couples who'd been divorced, and then um, to, wrote a book out of the, the findings from that study. He said this, this is what became clear, was that at the point at which a marriage really began to disintegrate, when things really went south, was when one spouse's self-centeredness took center stage in the marriage. And in response to the other spouse, out of anger that their own demands and expectations were now no longer central, got more impatient, resentful, harsh, and cold. In other words, they responded to self-centeredness, the self-centeredness of their partner with their own form of self-centeredness. And our mutual compromise and mutual fulfillment longings in the other ultimately divulges into mutual blaming and finger pointing. And when that happens and no one can take any of the responsibility and we're all just pointing fingers, that is the death of a marriage. Until God has become the proper place in your life, here's what you will have. You will have this nagging sense that your spouse does not complete you, does not support you, does not respect you enough or love you enough because they can't. They can't. Because we're looking to marriage to give us what only God can. Now, that's a problem. And we've been doing it since the fall of man. And realizing, but this, this can be the beginning of good news. Because realizing that your spouse cannot fulfill you is not the realization that dooms your marriage. It's the realization that may finally give your marriage some hope. The realization that we must come to is that we are called to submit our lives for the good of the other. To die to self. To pour oneself out to the other. And you say, okay, but if I don't get much juice out of this relationship, where the heck am I supposed to have my needs met? If you're saying, listen, okay, I'm supposed to pour myself out, I'm going to be the spouse that I'm supposed to be, and fulfill my vows, and give my life to, to serve them, even if they're not doing that for me, all right? how, but if I'm not getting love and affection from them, how am I supposed to have the energy to provide that for another person? If they're not fulfilling me. How do I die to myself and submit myself for the good of another? How do I do that if if I'm constantly pouring myself out for another and I'm not being filled up? I have to find a place to be filled up, and that is the good news. You have to find another place to be filled up. It's not work, though, and it's not your children, because often what we do is what we just go to another another form of God's. But what we have is our prayer, our problem with marriage can be interrupted. It can be interrupted by being filled with reverence. And here we're going back to Ephesians chapter 5, 18, and 21. Be filled. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says, do not be filled with alcohol, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit and we come full circle where we began this morning. That we submit to one another and lay our lives down as we consider others more significant than us. And this is a result of being filled with something. That you are fulfilled You're filled with the Spirit of God himself, and when the Spirit fills you up with a heart of understanding, with an experiential knowledge of the truth about Jesus and what he has done for you, in the Gospel of John, it's the place in the the Gospels where we most hear this language of, of the spiritual filling that we need. In the Gospel of John, John speaks about the Spirit and says that the work, the primary work of the Spirit is to point to the work of Jesus. We've talked about this before when we've looked at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a giant spotlight saying, look at Jesus and look what he has done for you. And when you do that, you begin to see what about Jesus? What does Paul pray? We looked at this a number of weeks ago when we looked at being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I pray that you would be filled with your hearts might be enlightened so that we may have the ability to grasp how long and wide and deep is the love of Christ. That when the Holy Spirit of God fills you up, he shines a bright spotlight so that your heart lives under the reflection, the bright light of God's love for you. And you bask in that. And that is where we come to this term, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ. Reverence is this word actually for fear. It means that you live with an awe and wonder at Christ. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed and you are controlled by something. Ah, In in the fall we are controlled by our selfishness. But what he's saying is what we need to do is we need to be returned to a place where we are controlled by a fear and awe and wonder at Jesus and what he has done for us. In other words, where do you get a reverence for Christ? By seeing what he has done in loving you. To be be at all of how he has submitted himself in order to save you. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, it was the last verse that we read this morning. We see what's called the proto-eoingelion. That's a Greek word for the first gospel. In which God comes down in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin, he pursues them, and he comes after them, and he says this to them. He he calls them to himself, and then he's gonna curse them. We've talked about the consequences, but even in that he makes this promise in their hearing, because he curses the serpent, and in cursing the serpent he says this I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. In other words, what he's saying is this, that there is one who's coming. In the the hearing of Adam and Eve, there is one who's coming, and he will be bruised. That is, the evil one will take Jesus to the cross and put him to death. But what he's saying there, that in that act, Jesus will crush the evil one. And he will crush. This is the first gospel, the good news. And then after God actually brings these consequences down upon Adam and Eve, it then says that he takes an animal and he kills the animal and sacrifices it. And he takes the clothing there and he puts it on Adam and Eve so their shame is covered over. And this is pointing in verses 21 of Genesis chapter 3 that an innocent one will be killed to provide them a covering. An innocent one will have to die and his blood will be shed so that our nakedness and our shame can be covered and so that we can be welcomed back to a place of security and love and warmth. And this points to what Jesus did for us. That Jesus so submits himself to our needs as his bride, he sets aside his glory and he takes on flesh and lives the life of perfect righteousness that we couldn't. But then as the perfectly righteous, innocent one, he has his blood shed. And he is he, he sacrificed so that he might be the covering of our shame and our guilt. Jesus refused selfishness and instead lays down his life as a sacrifice for the world, for his bride. So we ask, who will fill me up? Who will meet my needs for love and support and affection and care? And the Bible's liberating and refreshing answer to that is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the wellspring. And it's his love that you must be filled with in order to interrupt the pattern of selfishness in your life and in your marriage. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. We're gonna look at that more deeply. We're gonna look at that more deeply in a couple of weeks so that we don't have to resent our spouses. For we don't have to resent our spouses for not being our savior, we can say, You are not my savior, and that is a good thing. I don't need you to be my savior. I have a savior. And now I can love you without you, without having to just suck life out of you. I get my life from God. And we're going to look at that more deeply in a couple weeks. We're going to look at this idea of marriage as the drama, this, this picture of Christ loving the church. But I want to say one more thing to drive you into submission even now. How, how do I get where I'm hearing from the spirit of God's affirmation and love for me? How do I get to that place where I'm hearing the voice of God so I'm filled up with him? Well, the answer is found in the word, yes, absolutely. It's found in the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, yes, absolutely. But in this, I want you to understand, you don't simply just drink deeply by reading from the word, but you also drink deeply of Jesus' love when you make a commitment to submit again to his lordship in your life. When you actually come to him and say, I want to drink deeply of your loving lordship, and that means submitting to God's lordship in loving, even now, the person to whom God has given you to love and to serve. Even when you don't feel like it, even when you get up in that day and you feel emotionally and spiritually drained, no matter how difficult That you will lay yourself down. And it's actually in those places where we will actually subordinate ourselves to another. And God's call that we actually begin to hear his voice again. Here's how I provide you an illustration of this to see if I can bring this home. Robertson McGillican, he is a president of Columbia International University. and, And with this illustration, It's one of the most famous uh, missionary-sending schools. And I, I say he was the president of that university. You see, his wife of many, many years one day started repeating herself. And over time, after many studies and tests, they found that his wife, his lovely wife Muriel, had Alzheimer's. She was relatively young when she came under the difficulty and the pain and sorrow of Alzheimer's in her late 50s. And at the time, he was the thriving president of a growing university, now, at first, he tried to keep his job. They, they arranged for a companion to sit with her while he was at work. He, his house was just a half a mile from campus. And it was somewhat sweet in some ways because he would walk to work, but Muriel in her now becoming more and more childlike state, that he was the, the one she most wanted to be around, and she was desperate to be with him. And so he would get up to leave and walk to school every day, and she would run after him. She would walk after him. And so the companion, her kind of her babysitter, would follow her. And then once she got to the school, he would say goodbye to her. And the companion would walk her back to the house. But then as soon as Muriel got back to the house, she would realize her husband wasn't there again. And she would turn right back around out the door and walk right back to the university. And she would do this all day. Robertson McGillikin said he would put her to bed at night and she would have sores on her feet and blisters. And he realized, I have to come home, I can't go to work anymore many of his ministry says, put your ministry first. he said, okay, I'm resigning. (laughs) He resigned as president to take care of his wife. And he said this to the students when he resigned. He said, love is supposed to evaporate if the relationship is not mutual. That's what the world tells us. If it is not physical enough, if the other does not communicate, or if the other does not carry her share of the load, when I hear the litany of essentials for a happy marriage, I count off that litany as the things that my beloved can no longer contribute to this marriage. And I contemplate how mysterious love is. But here's what I find most compelling about the story of Robertson Mill Is he was struggling with the Lord in this. <laughs> I read this story somewhere and actually had someone who I know really hated the story. Because he's gonna, he actually struggles in the midst of, of loving his wife. He hated giving up the presidency. It felt like death to him. Because that's the reality. If we're going to submit to another person, it's going to be hard. We romanticize it by saying it's easy. But to him it was hard, and it was difficult, and it felt like death. And he said this. He wrestled with discouragement. And this is how though how I, what I find compelling about him. Because he writes with honesty about the difficulty it was to subserviate himself to God's will in loving his wife in the way that she needed And it said this. He tells the story of how he came to actually hear of God's love for him more deeply in the midst of this new ministry calling. He said, I prayed one night, Father... I like and I love this assignment as the president of the university. I love this assignment. But when a coach puts a man on the bench, he must not want him in the game. So, Father, you needn't tell me, of course. But I would like to know, why don't you need me in the game? Referring to his life and ministry as a president. He said he didn't, need, he didn't sleep well that night. And he, still, he woke still wondering. He was wrestling with God. He said, I, I, I'm submitting to this call, but I'm struggling and wrestling to accept this call of God on my life. They said that same morning as he was still kind of pondering, just in his own heart and his mind, he and Muriel went out for their morning walk, and they were going slowly. They were kind of in a tight embrace and, because he had to hold her to keep her from falling. So they had this kind of this shuffling walk, and in the midst of their, their little walk, they heard footsteps. And he said, I looked back, and I saw a local derelict standing by, this kind of redneck character who was known to get liquored up a lot. He said this man looked up and down and said this, that's good, I likes it. That's real good, I likes it a lot. And this drunk went stumbling back down the street, continually mumbling the words as he looked at them, that's good, I likes it. Well, when he and Muriel reached to their little, back to their little garden, the words of this drunk resonated in his mind, and he thought this, Lord, was that you whispering to me? <laughs> it's the Lord, I thought to myself, it's the Lord speaking to me through an inebriated old man, and I thought back to my prayer the night before about the Lord putting me on the bench, and then I thought, I may be on the bench, but Lord, if you like it, and if you say that this is good, then that's all that counts. In other words, if you want to hear God's love and affection in his, that's good. Sometimes it actually will begin by saying, I'm going to submit myself today. And I'm going to lay my life down today. And I'm going to trust that as I do that, I will hear from the Lord the words of affirmation and the words of security and the words of affection that I need to hear. Know this. A husband or a wife who submits his or her life for their spouse and kneels before the lordship of Jesus and takes on the difficult calling of saying, This place of submitting to this person, who says, I will submit my life for this person, to that, to that person, they will hear God say, Oh, that's good. I like it. And with that, let's pray. Lord, we have a mighty task in front of us, and it's mighty because by our own nature, it is impossible. We are a people naturally, we are born, and we wake up every morning with this great commission. How can I serve me? Oh, Lord, would you, by your spirit, come and fill us up, fill us up for the great mission of marriage we are the problem. We need you to be the answer. So Spirit of the living God, I pray that this day that you would fill up a husband who might go to his wife and say this, I have been made the center of our marriage all about me, and here's the way that I've done that, and that you would help him not to make any promises, but simply to repent. And for perhaps for us a wife to look at her husband and say, here's the ways in which I have made this about me. And I'm going to seek to try to serve you, and I will fail in that. But will you pray with me that the Spirit of God would fill me up to help me love you? Help me help you. By praying with me that the Spirit of God might fill me up. Would you do that, Lord? Make us a Spirit-filled church so that we have Spirit-filled marriages that reflect the beauty of of Christ's love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.